Let's bring in Dr. Sandy Buckman, president of the Canadian Medical Association. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, Is it too soon to be thinking about this or is this crucial as far as we're doing a good job, we're being told at this point, is this crucial as far as looking ahead to what could happen in the fall? Well, um, and that's actually the key question, Jill. Um, we are doing a good job, and we want to keep it that way. Uh, no one wants to go back to uh, the time of full lockdown and the, the kind of restrictions. Uh, you know, it's summer. Uh, people want to be out. Um, they have other health issues. They've had a lot of stress as a result of the lockdowns. So we want to take this opportunity to to give the message to remain vigilant. Um, we have seen and heard about uh, many Canadians not being as vigilant uh, as they might be. There's, you know, they're going out in crowds, they're not necessarily practicing uh, physical distancing and not necessarily wearing masks in indoor uh, public spaces. So uh, I think it's time to, to uh, give that message again. Let's not become complacent and we can avoid the surge of a, of a second wave and uh, keep things under control the way they are now. And how important is it, do you think, the messaging that people are getting and that we're now being told non-medical masks are a good thing to wear if you're in a situation where you can't physically distance from somebody? We're seeing some other provinces go even further and mandate masks being worn in public spaces. How, how difficult is it, do you think, when people tend to hear mixed messages or aren't quite sure what the messaging is? I think it's very difficult, and that's been sort of a struggle that governments and public health officials have had uh, throughout the pandemic since the beginning, because it changes as new evidence uh, becomes available. Um, And now the tendency, for example, of wearing masks is one of those. Now the message is clearer about masks, Uh, certainly in other parts of the country, such as Ontario, uh, where uh, in Toronto, for example, uh, masks are mandatory in indoor spaces. So um, I think it's important to um, to acknowledge this and be very clear uh, about further messaging. Keep it as clear and concise as possible. Uh, we're having some trouble right now. Uh, for example, we've heard that we're supposed to get uh, contact tracing apps uh, because immediate contest tracing is so important to to identifying where the disease outbreaks are so they can be isolated and contained. And yet, uh, we heard this in uh, mid-early June, uh, supposed to get it right after Canada Day. It's now been a week and we haven't had any information about uh, why the delay. So uh, this is part of the problem. We need consistent and clear messaging. How important is the the contact tracing, do you think, as well? Because in in BC, again, we've had some cases at uh, adult clubs. We've had some cases at a convenience store. And we're being told that they really only give us the specific location when they haven't been able to contact every single person where it's just not possible. So how important is it, do you think, that we have an app or we have something that makes that easier? Well, it's another tool in the toolbox. Um, you know, right now with lower numbers, uh, we're, we're coping with manual uh, tracing. But um, if a surge happens, we're going to need many more individuals, much more difficult to do all the manual contact tracing. And having another tool like the contact tracing app will allow this to be quite, uh, will allow this to be immediate and identifying those, uh, those outbreaks so that they can be contained. Um, again, we have to do all the public health measures, 
but this is, I think, a really important tool. The key to it is for the public to have trust in it, that their privacy is going to be protected and that enough people uh, can use it to make it effective. And that's going to be somewhere between 60 and 80 percent of the population to make this an effective tool. And are we prepared at this point? Because some of the the issues when this first started becoming an issue, when it became a pandemic, was the supply of uh, protection uh, of medical grade uh, protective equipment for healthcare workers. Do you think we have enough of a handle on it that we are prepared if there is a second wave? I think we've been better. Um, We're better, certainly, in the hospital situation, but we're still hearing from um, frontline physicians and nurses in the community that they don't feel that they have an adequate supply, just a few days' supply. And if, you know, remember that frontline healthcare workers are still using the personal protective equipment. Uh, There are universal precautions, they're donning it and doffing it uh, daily. And so it's, uh, we're going through it. Um, and so it's really important for um, them to feel good about having an adequate supply. And if uh, there is a surge again in the number of cases, that they won't run out of it too soon and put themselves uh, again in, in harm's way. So there's still some anxiety about there after uh, about PPE, particularly in the community. And what about the idea of of just how the public might respond in that when this first started, people were told to stay at home, doing the physical distancing, wearing the masks. We've got a lot of buy-in. People are, for the most part, taking this seriously and and doing this. But do you think that there's a risk of if there's a second wave of fatigue there and people, a reluctance to shut the economy down, a reluctance to go back to that? I think there is a definite risk. And when we see more complacency about about the situation, that's why we're putting out these messages now. We, and we'll, we'll keep on informing the public and, and saying we have to live with COVID-19. We're not, we're not cured yet. It's not over. COVID, COVID-19 is with us and will stay with us for the foreseeable future until there is a vaccine, until we're all vaccinated and have some herd immunity. So it's, it's being cautious. Um, It's taking the precautions. Nobody wants to go through lockdown again. Nobody wants to go through those restrictions again. We're ready to be out there. Um, But if we're too boisterous about it, if we neglect these these public health measures, um, then we'll see a bigger wave. But I think we can contain them. I'm optimistic we can because Canadians have responded so so well in the past. We were able to flatten the curve. Um, and so we're optimistic about it. I kind of see them as maybe little bumps here and there, kind of like moguls on the ski hill. And we can find our way through it in order to keep our economy going, to keep open our schools, uh, to deal with all the important uh, health issues that are still out there. All right, we'll leave it there. Dr. Buckman, thank you so much for your time today. It's much appreciated. Not at all. Thanks for being with us. Just a reminder that uh, Mary Ellen Trapelafond will be with us after the one o'clock news to talk more about the news conference she held just a few moments ago. Right now, though, we are going to shift gears and talk about a tower that is proposed for the corner of Birch and West Broadway in Vancouver. And if you're familiar with that corner, you will know that it used to be the home of a Denny's. And there has been much controversy about the tower that is proposed for that very spot. Francis Bula, who is a reporter and writes in the Globe and Mail, has written about this. The public hearing is being held tonight and Francis joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Hello to you. Hi, Jill. Why do you think, is it the height? Is it the density? What is it about this particular tower that's getting so much attention? Well, it is going to be the tallest residential tower 
built in really the central part of Vancouver, outside of downtown. Um, you know, Vancouver is sort of renowned around the world for being this city that's embraced urban density, but it really has only embraced it on the downtown peninsula. And so a building like this would not be out of place at all there. Uh, but uh, outside of that, um, there really haven't been, it hasn't been a residential building this size built uh, except on the periphery of the city, like down at Southwest Marine and Camby or, or you know, out on the far eastern edge. Um, and it's really places like Burnaby and Coquitlam and Surrey that have, you know, started putting um, buildings of this height up. So it's unusual for this section of Vancouver, even though it's on Broadway, which people call the second downtown of the city. And there's uh, talk as well of the fact that it that, that it is such a dense development and also questions, I suppose, of how many units will actually be below market prices if it's worth uh, putting in, uh, giving up some things for this development. Yeah, and I mean, that is always the really, the, the really difficult dilemma that cities all over are in is um, since federal and uh, government stopped providing money for housing in the province, here does provide some but you know not limitless for cities the only way for them to try to create affordable housing is by giving away density or i shouldn't say the only but you know it's one of the main ways they have and so it's always that trade-off like this developer jameson was was had gotten approval to build 16 floors of market rental and then the city had this new policy, if you provide a fifth of the units at under market rate, so starting at like 950 for a studio, which I don't know if you've looked for a rental lately, but that's a really good price um, for people who are in the kind of lower income range, you know, not in the $80,000 range. So they offered to change their proposal, add, um, I guess it would be 12 more floors, uh, and then they could provide 58 units of this uh, rent rental that is going for below what you see things on Craigslist for, for people who are in lower incomes. So it's a difficult trade-off, for sure. Um, you know, ideally, I think what everyone would love is government would magically buy up land and build a bunch of low-rise buildings and um, rent them out for $400 a month or something like that to the people who need them. But that's not happening anytime soon. So cities have turned to this. And and it does seem like it's another one of those cases where people that live in the neighborhood, there's been a website up for quite some time, uh, people with concerns about this. And, and I've talked to architects or planners about this too, uh, saying that maybe, well, they understand that, yes, this, this housing is needed. It's out of scale with the area, that it's going to cast shadows. It's going to uh, infringe on privacy of other buildings that are there. It's going to, uh, it's going to maybe uh, bring in uh, people that won't have parking, that will, that will have a big strain on the neighborhood yeah i mean i i guess you can say that about you know lots of new buildings that's always a concern about people and i live near uh you know a, what was a very controversial tower at kingsway and um uh, broadway so i you know i understand what it's like to be in a neighborhood that um you know worries about that it is this is a, it's funny because this isn't going in the middle of some suburban style block. I mean, it's on Broadway, which is kind of a business office, medical office corridor 
the BGH pavilion nearby is actually taller than this. Um, and, uh, you know, often the shadows that people think are going to happen don't really happen because there are a lot of intervening buildings that are already throwing their own shadows. But, you know, it is hard. People see a really big dramatic change and they don't know what's going to happen. And, uh, they don't know who's going to drive or take transit, and it's hard to, you know, visualize that working out for them. Uh, do you think it's going to be a rather uh, raucous uh, public hearing on this? Well, there's a lot of interest in it, and certainly the kind of younger, what they you call YIMBY, yes, in my backyard crowd, has mobilized a lot of support. Um, business associations are also coming out in support of this thing. You know, like it or not, we need housing for if people are going to work in this city. And, uh, and you know, there are opponents. So it's going to be a really interesting microcosm of, like, the, the divide in Vancouver over how do we preserve our lovely city, but how do we accommodate new people without making them pay a fortune? And, you know, it is a struggle of Vancouver right now, and this is battle over this building is really a microcosm of that. Do you think in this building, looking at this building specifically, it's the it's the difference of the initial approval of 16 floors. They didn't come back and say, oh, can we have four more floors or five more floors? They came back with 12, which is a significantly higher building. It is. It is high, you know, for that area. Again, you know, it's not any higher than a lot of the condos, new condos, um, uh, in Yaletown or North Falls Creek or, you know, along Marine Drive or whatever. But it's high for that area, that's for sure. And I, I don't know, it's hard to say if people would have sat back at the 16 floors. I've seen people object to five floors or six floors. So I, that's a bit of a theoretical one. Uh, but for sure, it's big for that area. It's different for that area. It's a first uh, unprecedented, and it's not surprising. It's attracting attention. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Francis, thank you so much. Great to chat with you. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks so much for being with us this afternoon. As you've been hearing on the news, an investigation now launched into racism at BC healthcare facilities, specifically Indigenous racism. You heard about this story before, the allegations of a Price is Right type game played when people would come into certain emergency room departments. So, well, let's talk more about this and what the investigation will look like and what the hope is that it will uncover and hopefully correct. Mary Ellen Trapelafond is the independent investigator leading this and she joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Good to have, good to be on your show. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you for making the time. Uh, busy day earlier in the news conference. You talked about how this isn't a question of does racism, racism exist. We know it does, uh, that we want to find out more where it's happening, what exactly is happening. So how do you, how do you anticipate doing that? Well, a couple of things. Today I launched a website, uh, a 1-800 number for people to call me, both Indigenous people who have experienced racism and health professionals and others. And I'm launching a pretty big survey of Indigenous people in BC to make sure that I can um, amplify and understand their voices. And then I actually do have an investigative team that's looking into the cases that have come forward since Minister Dix um, announced this review 
I've had more than 100 cases have come my way already, and I've started to talk with people and assemble the team. So, you know, we are going to have to look into it. And, and, and what I've seen already so far is that in every health region in British Columbia, there are Indigenous people that are identifying the treatment that they've received as being substandard and, in fact, saying that they feel that there was racism in the treatment that they had. So this is a very important issue in our healthcare system, and I am looking into it very actively at, the, at this time. And when you say more than 100 cases have already come your way, are you talking specifically about this alleged game, the Price is Right type game, where workers were apparently trying to guess blood alcohol levels or different cases as well? Well, I have that game situation that's come forward, and I'm looking into that game in the emergency room. Um, There are also others who have come forward, have identified concerns, uh, not necessarily with a game, but um, substandard treatment of Indigenous people or the assumption that the Indigenous person that presents at the emergency room is intoxicated when they're seeking health care. So there's a range of things that have come forward, but the game situation of... um, you know, sort of the workplace game of guessing intoxication levels um, is one that I'm, you know, actively investigating. And so that will be a key part of the report that I'll produce. But since being, since it's been launched, I've, I've, you know, had some credible and important information about a range of other concerns on individual and systemic racism. So it sounds like the investigation will be a bit, a much broader spectrum. What, what was started by these allegations of this game uh, seems to have led to get you getting reports and opening up the door to having people have much bigger conversations on, on a range of, of racist incidents that simply aren't acceptable. Yeah, so, um, you know, those are those range, those range from different things, like people are brought incidents to me to, that were almost more like quality of care, like to say that the quality of care that they got in an emergency room was they felt compromised by the fact that the, you know, the health professionals responding to them in the emergency room made assumptions about them being intoxicated or being people who had severe addictions. And so that theme that's come out because of this game has really opened up um, a range of issues that they're, you know, people are bringing forward to me, and I'm glad they are. We need to get it out. And from what I've seen so far, Indigenous people are experiencing this pretty broadly across British Columbia. What do you say to some of the responses? And I don't think they've been made public or on the record, but there are, have been anecdotal responses of people saying, and I guess in some way trying to rationalize, rationalize this, saying it is a very high-stress job. If this game was played with everybody that came into an ER, if it wasn't played only with Indigenous people, it was played with every single person that came in, and by playing the game was the level of care, uh, the, the, the level of care was not affected in any way. It didn't get in the way of, of patient care. While it might be unsavory, uh, there's this argument or this this justification that it's it's not racist. Yeah, well, I think that, first of all, we have to really look at what space that, that pushback or response is coming from. And that is like emergency rooms are not sort of a privileged space where it's fair game to make fun of the patients. Um, and particularly on any ethnocultural basis, but if an Indigenous patient presents, like, it's, it's just, it's not on. It's not going to be acceptable to do that. So if there's a kind of privilege that exists in urgent care that permits games to be played that demean people, 
um, you know, that has to end. Maybe that did happen in the history of healthcare and, you know, other public services, but that era is over. And so we need to get to the bottom of it. We need to root it out and we need to stop that. So it's not acceptable to say, I'm in a stressful environment, therefore I have to behave in a racist way. That's not acceptable. Um, and in fact, what I'm hearing from the healthcare professionals is, you know, I participated in something like this and I'm feeling really badly about it. This was really wrong. And I don't know why I went along with it. I was a bystander. I should have spoken up. I didn't. And I want to now. So I'm actually seeing a lot of uptake by health professionals saying, you know, we're naming and identifying practices that really are not healthy in our workplace. And we, we want to shift. So I see that as a good sign. Do you see then what comes from that? And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of my questions in that if you're not hearing from health professionals, uh, who would be able to tell you about the, the games being played? Because presumably the patients at the time didn't know if, if you were being taken into an ER. Unless you heard them playing the game or saw something, you probably wouldn't even know it was happening. Uh, so if healthcare professionals are coming forward and telling you this do other are, are they naming names then is the the possibility that other healthcare workers will be reprimanded well first of all it's really important for me to hear from healthcare professionals directly and i'm doing so in a way that i can protect the security of the person interviewed i'm not going to disclose their personal information in a report um, it's really you know i want them to be safe i don't want them to have any recriminations in the workforce for coming forward so that's the first thing i want to hear from them they are reaching out to me and i intend to treat them with utmost respect but also to get the disclosures that they feel that they need to make but however you know i am working very closely with the college for physicians nurses and others and they have said to me and they put a quote in the news release i put out today which is they fully support this review And if something comes to light in the review, like if I find some examples where I think there are professional standards have not been met or worse, you know, I will bring that back because I do have that obligation. But at the same time, they're encouraging their members. They're saying, yes, we are the College of Physicians and Surgeons. We're the College of Nurses or Midwives. And we want you to cooperate with this anti-racism review because now is the moment to address it. And, um, you know, we, we have this, this concept, it's almost like, bring it out now, because if people sit on it, and the sort of impact it has on other people, like this is not the time to sit on it, this is a time to bring it out. So I'm hoping they'll do that with me. And I, I, I want to assure any of your listeners who may be healthcare professionals, that they can do that. And I want to assure your listeners who may be Indigenous people, that I want to hear from them. I've launched a survey today. I want to hear about their experience. There's a tip line. They can call me if they have cases. Uh, this is our moment in British Columbia to address racism in healthcare, and we must seize this moment together. Where can people go if they want to participate in this? Right. So there's a new website. Um, I have an investigative number. It's one eight eight six hundred three zero seven eight, and hopefully you can link it on your my new website. You can link it on your program. And I have an email, a confidential email, um, and, and you'll see the survey on the new website. So we will make sure you have those details, Jill. So hopefully you can make it available to your listeners so they'll easily be able to navigate to our site. All right, we will do that. Uh, Mary Ellen Trapelafon, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. 
Thank you very much. Hope to talk to you again soon. Well, as you've been hearing on the news at a news conference earlier today, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police called on federal lawmakers to decriminalize illicit drugs, the possession of small amounts of illegal drugs, drugs that would be used for personal consumption. The CACP president, as well as Vancouver's Chief Constable Adam Palmer, joins me now to talk a bit more about this. Chief Adam Palmer, thank you so much for being here here with us. My pleasure, Jill. Thank you. Uh, why now? We've heard calls for this in the past. Why now was the decision made for chiefs of police to do this? Yeah, so it's something we've been looking at since, well, really in Vancouver, you'll know the history because this was a CACP initiative, but in, in our own city, which has been the worst hit by the opioid crisis, we've really been dealing with this since the fall of 2014. So on a national level, it did take a while for the opioid crisis to make its way across the country. But right now we're in a a situation where about 11 Canadians per day are dying of drug overdose, which is pretty significant number, more so than, you know, any other type of um, cause that we would normally see. So in March of 2018, the CACP, uh, Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, we have a drug advisory committee and we struck a special purpose committee to look at the issue of decriminalization because it was so topical and it was something that we wanted to make sure we had a good position on. So we had a number of our members um, participate in a research project and also travel to about 10 different countries around the world and look at different drug policies that were existing in those countries, what was working, what wasn't working, and then comparing that to our own policies in Canada. Were police still actively arresting people or uh, charging or taking away small amounts of illicit drugs? It's a mixed bag across the country. So Vancouver would be a little bit of an outlier in a sense that really for about the last 10 years, we haven't um, had any significant arrests with regard to possession of a controlled substance. We've always focused on for the last decade on importation, trafficking, manufacturing, things like that. So possession has not been something that we've uh, focused on at all. However, that's not the case in other areas of the country, in Ontario and other provinces. You know, Ontario obviously being a lot larger than British Columbia. There was a more traditional sort of focus on enforcement and police there were paying more attention to arresting and charging people for small amounts of controlled substances. So when you talk about the overdose crisis, and I get what you're saying about Vancouver, I'm even looking at a Vancouver Sun story from 2001 uh, saying that Vancouver police have, for all practical purposes, stopped arresting people for drug possession. We're still seeing, though, especially during this pandemic, an increase in some record numbers in overdose deaths. So if Vancouver already had taken that position, but we're seeing an increase in overdose deaths, how are the, how is one going to help the other? Well, you have to remember that since that time, dating back to 2001, we didn't have fentanyl. If you would have asked me 20 years ago, I wouldn't have probably even known what fentanyl was. So that came on the drug scene about six years ago now and did make its way across Canada. And that really was a game changer. Historically, Vancouver has has been a big heroin city. We've had high uh, numbers of users of heroin for many, many years, dating back to, well, before when I started policing in the late 80s. And fentanyl really took the place of um, heroin because it's cheaper, it gets you high, and it's a better bang for the buck for a drug dealer. So it it made sense for them to switch from um, heroin to fentanyl because it was cheaper. Hmm. Uh, The Prime Minister has repeatedly said he's opposed to decriminalization of illicit drugs. Do you think that, are you hoping that will change? Yeah, I am. 
because when we've looked at other models around the world, like certain countries, um, you know, we went to Portugal, Norway, New Zealand, and a, and a host of other countries. And those three countries in particular have very progressive drug policies where they don't treat small amounts of drug possession as a criminal offense. They treat it as a health care issue. And what we're talking about here is we're talking about decriminalizing. So we're not talking about legalization, which is like what we have with cannabis. We're talking about decriminalization. So, that, I mean, that can have a number of non-criminal responses. It could be fines or warnings, things like that. But most importantly, what we'd like to see is make it a pathway into a healthcare approach that diverts people from the criminal justice system into um, healthcare options. Because, you know, if you are going to help people in the long run, one of the best ways is uh, treatment and healthcare options to get them on a good path in life. So could it be done in a way, like you said, Vancouver being a bit of an outlier that stopped doing this several years ago, could it be done in a way then that goes around federal lawmakers if police forces across the country decided to stop doing this? Do you need federal approval or do you need an actual change in the criminal code to, to make this change happen? Well, there are exceptions. You're right. So, I mean, in Vancouver, what we've seen over the years is um, things like supervised consumption sites recently a move towards safe supply and crosstown clinic, things like that, that you'd be familiar with. Um, you know, we've had community courts and drug courts and things like that in different places. So there are different workarounds. But what we're seeing is that it's time for the federal government to look at and this would be under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which is a federal act similar to the criminal code. But Section 4.1 specifically talks about uh, possession of a controlled substance. And we think for possession of small amounts that that should actually be treated in a different format than it is now. And let's not get people into justice. Let's get them into the healthcare stream. Police would still be heavily involved in the enforcement of you know, drug trafficking, of importation and manufacturing. But for those lower level um, type what we would call a crime now, we think that healthcare is a better way to go. So we're actually asking the federal government to take a closer look at this and realize that, you know, the police chiefs are calling for it. We do have a loud voice. We do have a voice that, um, generally speaking, the federal government does pay attention to. And we're asking, you know, to sit down at the table with Public Safety Canada, um, you know, Public Prosecution Service of Canada, Health Canada, and different stakeholders. And let's have a proper discussion and think about, you know, what's best for Canadians and what's best for public safety. And I don't think the justice system is always the best way. All right, Chief Adam Palmer, we will leave it there. But thanks for making some time for us today. Thank you, Jill.